Good morning, church. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Philippians. We uh, continue in our series, uh, The Fight for Joy, in the book of Philippians. I hope you enjoyed some of those quotations that we just looked at, um, although some of them you have to uh, think on a a little while. Um, What really was the common denominator there was that throughout history, both from Scripture and uh, from men uh, and women who sought God, um, there was a holy angst, a passionate desire a, 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 as Psalm 27 says, a one thing do I want, and that is to know you, God. And that's what we're going to see this morning, the joy of knowing Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Philippians uh, chapter 3 breaks up into a couple sections, and we're going to take a look at the first section, verses 1 through 11, as we learn yet another source of joy for the person who's been born again, and that is joy in knowing Jesus Christ. So I trust you're there. Let's pray together, and uh, we'll jump into this rich, passionate, wonderful, exemplary section of Scripture as Paul really um, opens up his heart and we get to see that which is his deepest desire and his deepest passion, and he models this for the Philippians and for us, the pursuit of joy in knowing Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for men and women throughout the ages who have, a ho- who have had an, a holy angst, uh, maybe even a, a violent longing to know you so that nothing on earth, nothing else in this world could satisfy them but you and you alone. And we know that when we come to place our faith in your son, Jesus Christ, we are, as the Bible says, born again. We become new creations, new creatures. The old man is gone and the new has come. And as a part of this recreation of us, you give us desire that are for you, and you, you set yourself in our hearts so that nothing else in this world can truly satisfy us other than you, and yet we confess to you, and I confess to you that we are idolaters. We, we continue to pursue lesser joys, and we continue to pursue things thinking that they will make us ultimately satisfied, and they fall short time and time again when you and you alone, because of our recreated hearts, are what we need, are what we desire. And so we thank you for men and women of old. We thank you for this text as, as Paul lays bare his heart and his only desire is to know Christ better. And I pray that you would challenge all of us, including myself, that we would examine our hearts and our affections and see how we match up with what he has said to see if we could truly say, as Paul said, says that I want to know you with all of my heart, with all that I am, and everything else is rubbish besides knowing you. May you do a work in those of us who are believers in Christ to get us to this point so that we want nothing but you. And I pray for um, a man or a woman, a young boy or girl today that they don't have that desire for Christ in their hearts because they have not been born again. They're not a Christian, and they desire joy and happiness in all uh, sorts of places, and yet True joy is found in knowing Christ. And so I pray for that person that they would come to the realization that they are seeking faulty gods and that they would come and submit, humble themselves before Jesus Christ, the source of ultimate joy, the one who sacrificed himself on our behalf for our sins and rose from the dead to offer us new life, eternal life, and true righteousness and right standing before you, Father. May they today humble themselves and be born again. And so we ask for your presence today, and we ask for your joy today, and all of God's people said, amen. So I want to begin with a couple images to maybe set up a contrast that I I think is very 
is very stark, is very prevalent here in chapter 3. Paul is going to talk a little bit about his past. He's going to talk about his past, and then he's going to talk about his present. He's going to talk about his life before Christ and his life after Christ and, and the utter difference that Jesus Christ made in his passions, in the place that he found and sought joy. It's a, it's a contrast, and so I'd like to to share an opening illustration along those lines. Uh, a few months ago, in fact, I think it was back in February, uh, my family and I took a trip, a, a vacation for about a week, down to Panama City Beach, Florida. And uh, there we had a, a, a wonderful time. We really enjoyed uh, going to the beach. My kids uh, particularly enjoyed the sand because the water was, well, pretty cold uh, there in February. And so uh, Asher ventured out into the water just a bit. But we spent most of our time at the beach there enjoying the sand. And Asher enjoyed the sand in a lot of ways. Uh, he, he dug, we made sand castles, we dug trenches, we ran, we looked for crabs, and of course, seashells, which we brought home, I think, a couple of bag, Ziploc bags full of seashells. He really enjoyed the sand, and Piper did uh, a little bit, although Asher particularly enjoyed the sand. And so we thought, uh, since Piper's second birthday was coming up in June, that is right, isn't it? June? Yeah, okay. I'm going to make sure I remember when my daughter was born, right? Uh, since her birthday was coming up, that we would maybe invest in a sandbox. We thought they really enjoyed uh, the, the sand there at the beach. And of course, our, our daughter was uh, pretty much using our flower bed as a sandbox, and she was getting into our flowers. So we thought, let's fix this problem by getting uh, one of these, a uh, sandbox, right? And so we looked into, I say we, my wife, she looked into a myriad of, of sandbox options, and this is the one that we chose. Uh, it was very good. This is free promotional uh, material for them. If you like, want a sandbox, this is the way to go. It's about five by five, I think. It has a couple nice seats. And uh, our kids really enjoy playing with it. And so they've been playing uh, for the past several months and enjoying their sandbox. Um, but this is the sand that we saw essentially at the beach in Florida. Uh, this, was, this is Panama City Beach. I don't know exactly where we stayed in one of those places down that stretch. Um, but there's the sand there, and uh, they very much enjoyed the sand in this place as well. So I want to ask you, uh, we can move on from that image. I want to ask a quick question. Which of the sands... Uh, do you think that they enjoyed the most? Which would be more enjoyable? Which would be more fun to play in? A five-by-five sandbox, which has limited sand and no ocean, uh, or the uh, temperature and the ocean and the sand and everything that's involved there with the beach? Which sand do you think they would enjoy most? Which would give them the most joy? And uh, the answer, church, is very easy. It's which one? It's the beach, right? Uh, it's, it's the beach, of course. Well, I want to share with you a quotation by a, a really influential Christian by the name of C.S. Lewis. He used this imagery of, of, of a sandbox, in a sense, and a beach to illustrate a point about the joy that knowing Jesus gives us compared to, to all other joys. So this is what he has to say. He says, It would seem that our Lord, speaking of Jesus... It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He goes on to say, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when, notice, infinite joy, when infinite joy is offered to us. And then he paints the picture. We are like ignorant children 
who want to continue making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. And then he ends by saying this, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is the difference, in a sense, between enjoying a sandbox and enjoying the ocean, between enjoying the the 5x5 sandbox at my house and enjoying the vast amount of sands and beauty that a, a, a beach offers us. Today, we're going to look at Paul's life, and he's going to give us, open up his heart and, and help us to see his life before Christ and his life after Christ, and he's going to contrast this far superior joy of knowing Jesus with his life before Christ, with what I will call religion, that which he was invested in, that that which he thought would make him happy, that which he thought would make him holy before God. And he's going to say, I was, in the words of C.S. Lewis, like a child making mud pies in the slum because I couldn't imagine what was meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. I was far too easily pleased. So if you're taking notes and you want to know where we're going, there's a couple sections. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11, and there are really two main sections. Uh, The first section is verses 1 through 6, which we're going to begin. And uh, Paul here talks about what I will call self-righteous religion. That's just my tag for it, if you want to jot that down. Self-righteous religion. He's going to talk about his life before Christ And he's going to talk about how his self-righteousness, his self-righteous religion uh, stole his joy. And he's going to warn the church and he's going to warn us about a joy stealer. And then in verses 7 through 11, he's going to talk about what I would call Jesus' righteous relationship. He's going to talk about how when he met Christ and how he trusted in Christ's righteousness and entered into a a love relationship, and how that was not a joy stealer, but was actually a great joy giver. So we have self-righteous religion in Jesus' righteous relationship. So let's begin now with Paul's description of self-righteous religion. He's going to warn the church that it steals joy. He begins in verse 1, and he's going to call the church and us, if you're a believer in Christ, he's going to call us to have joy. He's going to call us to find our joy in Jesus Christ. So let's just read the very first part of verse 1. Further, my brethren, your translations may say, finally, my brothers, finally, my brothers and sisters. You know, we've, uh, we're about halfway through this little letter. We've got two chapters to go. And like any good preacher, remember, this is not, it's a letter, but it's meant to be read out loud. It's like a sermon. And he knew that they would hear it that way. And like any good preacher, about 10 or 15 minutes before he's actually done, he says, finally, right? In conclusion. And then he goes about 10 or 15 minutes more. That's what good preachers do. That's what Paul does. We think he's going to wrap up. He says, finally, my brothers and sisters, he's going to give them a command that he's going to repeat later in chapter 4 because he wants them to know that they should seek joy in their relationship with Christ. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a simple admonition for Christians to find joy in Jesus But I think specifically, he wants them to find joy in who Jesus is. That is, who is Jesus Christ? He's God's son. He's he's fully God. He's fully man. He humbled himself. He was born of a virgin, uh, and he came into our world to save us. He's our Savior. We're supposed to rejoice in who he is, but not only that. I think Paul implies that 
We are to rejoice in what he's done for us. We're to rejoice in what he's done inside of us as Christians. And we're to rejoice in what he's doing through us as we live our lives for the glory of God and share his gospel. So this joy is centered on the person of Christ. It's a simple call. We're going to talk about it more later, but it's really important that I I want you to understand this. He begins this section by calling us to joy in Jesus, right? To rejoice in who he is, and specifically, I think he has in mind what he has done for us. So Christians, you want joy, pursue it in Jesus. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but we've talked about several sources of joy. We've talked about joy uh, in gospel friendships. We've talked about joy in gospel proclamation. We've talked about joy in living for Jesus. And the common theme in this, of this book is that in, in a myriad of ways, the source of joy is Jesus, right? It's that simple. The source of joy for the Christian is Jesus, and then it works itself out in a lot of different ways. And this morning, it works itself out in joy, uh, the joy of knowing Jesus in a personal way. So he begins with a call to rejoice in Christ, and then notice what he does next. He's going to say, I'm gonna, he's going to give them a warning. He's going to give us a warning. And so far, maybe you've noticed this, or maybe you haven't, so far, the book of Philippians, this little letter, it's been, really, it's been really kind. It's been tender. Paul speaks tenderly to his, these Christians. It's full of love and compassion. It's been a soft letter, but his tone is going to change because he's not going to talk about the Christians. He's going to talk about the non-Christians who are trying to steal the joy of the Christians by importing legalism, so to speak, a, a self-righteousness. And he's going to turn and he's going to talk to them in his language. It's not going to be so soft. It's not going to be so friendly. In fact, he's going to use some words that were pretty harsh. And he's going to warn them about people who would steal their joy and rob them of the gospel if they believed them. So let's notice what he has to say in verses 1 through 3, the tail end of verse 1. He said, It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. So listen, I'm going to write, I'm going I'm to warn you about these people before. I've warned you again. It's safe for you, and it's not at all a problem to me. Us preachers, we can see the, say the same thing over and over and over again. It's not a problem, right? That's what he says. So here's the warning in verse 2. Watch out. Watch out. There's people they need to be aware of. Watch out for those dogs. Ouch. Watch out for those dogs, those evil doers those mutilators of the flesh. And so in verse 2, he gives this warning. I want you to watch out for these people. So who were they? Well, he doesn't specifically name them, right? We don't know for sure, but the context of this little book and of much of Paul's letters uh, indicate that these were probably people that we call Judaizers. That is, they were people who thought they were Christian. They wanted to, in a sense, identify with the Christian faith and in, in, in Jesus, but they were adding to the gospel. What they were essentially saying was that faith in Christ is not enough. They were, they were saying, you, once you become a Christian, especially if you're not Jewish, you need to keep the Old Testament law, all of it, to a T. In particular, they valued the right of circumcision for little boys as a sign of entering into a relationship with God, and they were insisting on these things. They were essentially saying that faith in what Christ has done was not enough. They were saying faith in Jesus is not enough to be saved. It's not enough to be right with God. My mom as uh, maybe I've told you before, 
my mom was a math teacher for many, many years. And so um, I did decent in math. I think I got a little bit of her genes. And uh, there's something in me that likes equations. Think of me as weird, but I, I kind of like math. I like equations. I like the simplicity of them, and I like that they're absolute. If you add one and two together, you get three, and that's that, right? It's black and white. I like that. So I, I'll share what, what these people uh, were saying in, in, equation, in, in equation format. What they were essentially saying was that Jesus plus something. They were saying you had to have Jesus plus something else to be saved. Simple enough. Jesus wasn't enough. Jesus plus something else to be saved, to be right with God. And Paul here uses some stern words. He calls them dogs. Why does he call them dogs? To be rude? I don't know. He's just call, he, he's calling a spade a spade. Now, in those days, Jews would often call non-Jews derogatorily dogs. They were dogs. And so Paul uses this language, and he turns it around. And he says, you Gentiles, you Philippian Gentiles, you're not the real dogs. They're the dogs. And in that day, it's probably a double meaning because when we think of dogs, what do we think of? We think of our pied, uh, you know, little Fido who's groomed and cute and stays in our house and sleeps in our bed and is very tame, right? But in those days, this is a, a word used for wild dogs. So think like ravenous wolves. Think like coyotes. They would roam about the streets. They were unkept. They were miserably gross. They would eat all sorts of trash and even human uh, 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 human parts that, that remained, they were gross, despicable, dangerous. And he says, these guys are like that. They're like dogs. He, he calls them evildoers. And he says, listen, they're self-righteous. They think by doing, keeping the Old Testament, by doing good, that they're earning favor with God, but they're actually doing evil. Their self-righteousness is evil before God. And then he calls them the mutilation. <laughs> what? He calls them the mutilation. Well, remember, they were saying that you had to be circumcised if you were going to be a Christian, right? And Paul says, listen, by insisting on circumcision for a male who became a Christian, you're not doing anything of value. You're simply cutting yourself. You're mutilating your body. And so in strong terms, he says, listen, these are joy stealers. They are not gospel-centered people. They take away from our joy in the Lord. Because remember, as Christians, we rejoice in what Christ has done for us. And what were these people doing? They were rejoicing in what they had done for God, right? And so he says, watch out for them. And then in verse 3, he describes... He describes the true Christian. Notice what he says in verse 3. For it is we. So he's, he includes himself. These are the true people of God. For it is we who are the circumcision. He just simply means we are the real people of God, not them. We are the circumcision who do what? We serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, he says in verse 3, and who put, who put no confidence in the flesh. He essentially says, listen, the true people of God are marked by these things. We serve God not on our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, listen, we, we don't boast in ourselves and what we can do to be made right with God. We boast in Christ. We boast in what Christ has done to make us right with God. And he says, we don't put any confidence in our flesh, meaning I don't put one ounce of confidence that anything that I can do will make me stand righteous and holy and acceptable before holy God as a sinner. We don't put one ounce of confidence in what we have done, but everything in what Christ has done. So he warns them of this self 
righteous religion, that it steals joy. Charles Swindoll says it this way. In his book, Laugh Again, he says, he says, nobody can rob people of their joy quicker than a few narrow-minded legalists. When you never know how much is enough to satisfy God, you are left in a continual state of shame and obligation. And so he says, listen, these people will steal your joy if you go this route. And then he takes a turn. He, he kind of goes down a trip uh, for a trip down memory lane. He's going to use his example, right? And he turns to, to look at his own example then in verse 4. He says, though, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. So he says, listen, if anybody thinks that they are righteous enough, can obey God perfectly enough, it's going to be me. He says, listen, you think that these people have anything on who I used to be before I became a Christian? He says, not a, not a chance. There were these old commercials that you may remember uh, with Mia Hamm, who is a, a great Olympian soccer player, and Michael Jordan, we all know who he is. And uh, it was a Gatorade commercial, and they were playing sports, and so Mia was trying to guard Michael in the basketball court, and of course he dunked on her, right? But then she's trying to dribble past him, and she scores a goal, and they sing this song, Anything you can do, I can do better, right? I can do anything better than you, right? And so they're going back and forth. Paul's, I imagine him singing this song. <laughs> he says, listen, anything these guys can do, I have done and can do better. And so he takes a trip down memory lane of, of before he became a Christian. And he, in a sense, he lays out his spiritual resume. So think of it in that, in that terms. Uh, I think we all, as, as, as people, before we come to Christ, we have a resume that we think will be good enough uh, for a holy God, this resume of why we should be good enough for him. He's going to list his resume, okay? And it's, it's really good. Notice what he says in verses 4 through 6. It's a really good resume. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so he lists about seven things. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law. What does he say, church? Faultless. Let that sink in for a little bit. As to a righteousness according to obeying the law, Paul claims that he was faultless. Wow, that's a pretty good resume, right? That's a wonderful resume. He, he essentially... He, he lists three categories. He says, first of all, he had religious initiation. That is his circumcision. That is the sign for any Jew to enter into the covenant with God. He had the right religious initiation. Secondly, he had the right religious heritage, right? He was a pure-blooded Jew. He boasted in that. I'm not one of these proselytes. My daddy and mommy were both pure-blooded Jews. I was a pure-blooded Jew. I came from a very important tribe in the history of my nation, right? He's listing these things, his heritage, and he kept the Jewish customs. There were Jews in that day that they were very uh, pagan in their customs. They wouldn't do all of the things that, that Jews would do. And so he, he lists his heritage. He says, my initiation is good. My heritage is good. And then finally... He lists some religious activities. Notice, he strictly was a law keeper. He was, according to the law, a Pharisee. Now, what do we know 
What do we know about the Pharisees? We know that they were the strictest people. So they were in all of Israel. If you wanted to obey the law to the T and then way above and beyond, you would become a Pharisee. So he was the Jew of Jews, right? He was a Pharisee. According to zeal, he was incredibly zealous for his religion. He killed people in the name of his religion. You can't knock him for not having zeal. And then he says, I thought, according to the law, I kept all of them, all 600 and whatever, how many there are. He says, I I kept them all, he thought. And so he lists this resume, this spiritual resume, this righteousness that he thought would make him right before God. These things that he was so invested in that he thought I think would give him joy. And so let me pause just a minute and stop talking about Paul and talk about me and you, right? Let's move from Paul to us. Does this sound like your spiritual resume? As I've said before, we, we all have a spiritual resume. We all think when we stand before God upon death that we will lay out our resume and we'll say, here are all the reasons why I should go to heaven. Here are all the reasons why... Uh, why I, I'm going to be good enough, why, why I'm not going to go to hell. And, and, and maybe your resume reads kind of like Paul's. You trusted, you trust in your religious initiation, right? Maybe you were baptized as an infant or maybe as an adult. Maybe you went through a confirmation class like I did in the Methodist church when I was 12 years old, and therefore I was a member of the church, right? Or Maybe you joined a church uh, as an adult and, and you entered into a church, this religious initiation that many, many people, and maybe some of you, you think, I've, I'm in. I went through the religious initiation. And Paul says, he's going to say, that will not cut it. Maybe you trust in your religious heritage. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe uh, uh, from the time of your birth, you were in church. Maybe, uh, and I I say this uh, jokingly, maybe your mom gave birth to you on the altar and you came out. And the first word you said, uh, other than crying, was Jesus. You know, maybe you were literally born in the church. Of course, nobody was. But you feel like that. And you think, hey, listen, I'm good. I've always, I've always gone to church. Maybe your parents were people of great faith. Maybe you trust in your denomination. I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Baptist. I'm an independent Bible. I'm a name your religion, name your denomination, right? And you trust in this heritage. And you think that when you stand before a holy God, that that would be good enough. Maybe it's your religious activity. Like Paul he thought he could be good enough. So you attend church regularly. Maybe you give financially to the church. Maybe you're a fairly moral person. You haven't committed that many, uh, done illegal things. You haven't been in jail, maybe. Maybe you're not as bad as other people. And you think, listen, I'm pretty good. I, you know, I I make mistakes here and there, but look at that guy. I, I don't cheat on my wife. Look at that girl. I don't do this. And you judge yourself according to other people. And you think, I'm doing all right. And when you think you stand before God, that that's going to be an acceptable answer. You're going to lay the spiritual resume out and you think he's going to accept you and Paul's going to say, listen, there is no resume other than the resume of Jesus Christ that will be good enough on that day. And so he talks about this self-righteous religion. He warns the church, it steals your joy. Don't go there. And everything changed. His perspective changed when he met Jesus, and he met a superior resume. So let's take a look at that now, this Jesus-righteous relationship that is a joy giver, verses 7 through 11. He models joy in Jesus. Here in this section, I think in a couple ways, he models for us how to find joy 
what it means to have joy in Jesus. First of all, the joy of knowing Jesus relationally. He's going to talk about how he knows Jesus like a friend. And then he's going to talk about the joy of trusting in Jesus' righteousness, not in his own. And he begins with describing this joy in having a relationship, knowing Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verses 7 and 8. But, and this is a huge but, but, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth, notice the language, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Notice this language. I consider them garbage. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Essentially what he says is, remember all of those things that I just listed? Those things that he was so invested in? Those, his resume that he thought would be good enough for God? He says, listen, when I met Christ and I saw his resume was far superior and mine was less, all of those things that were in the gain column, all of those things I counted to be for my spiritual advantage became what? Became loss. They became spiritual disadvantages because they can't lead you to a relationship with God. You're not good enough. He says, all of those things, I consider them my disadvantage. But then notice, he, he ups the ante. He doesn't just talk about the things that he trusted in to make him right with God. But then notice what he says, I believe in verse 8. What is more, I consider everything. Not just those things he listed, but everything, everything in life. He considers everything as a loss because of what? The surpassing value, the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. He essentially says it's incomparable. Knowing Christ and anything else that might give joy, anything else that I might want in this world, it's not a fair fight. Jesus wins every time is essentially what he says. He says everything is a loss because of this surpassing value of knowing Christ personally. He says he's lost all things, and he probably did lose quite a bit. He's sitting in a Roman jail cell, or at least under house arrest. His freedom is lost. He may die. His life may be lost. Whatever friends or family, whatever, he, whatever business, whatever money, it could be gone in a minute. And he says, I don't care about that. That's loss compared to knowing Christ. And then notice the language he uses. He says this, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them as garbage. That's a, it's a good translation, but it's kind, of a, it's kind of a weak translation. This word has been used to describe various things. For instance, street garbage. So you're walking down the street and you see trash and it's gross, or maybe, maybe like, like I do, you, you take out your trash on, on Thursday morning, right? And, you, and this, it stinks and it smells and it's gross and you take it out. You don't want it. It describes garbage. It describes rotten food. If you've ever opened your fridge and, and seen something, you're like, oh, that's stinky. That's, oh, gross. It makes your stomach curl, right? That, that's, it describes rotten food. It described once a half-eaten corpse. Lovely, right? Uh, it describes uh, feces. Uh, let's just use the word poop. That's safe. Um, it describes poop. Uh, and so think, think in those terms. He says, everything else in this world, when I compare it to the value and the joy of knowing Jesus Christ in a real relational way, it's like a half-eaten corpse. It's like 
poop. It's like dirty, rotten food. Uh, in my household, we typically do cloth diapers. Now, I know several of you, well, maybe when you had kids, cloth diapers were all you had, maybe. So you can sympathize with me, in a sense. Uh, it has. I'm glad we do them. Uh, but there's a certain disadvantage to it, and that is you have to remove the, 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 the poop yourself, right? There's none of this folding it and then throwing it away. What you do, just in case you know, or you change one of my kids' diapers, um, hey, who wants to babysit, right? Uh, you, you take the, the diaper and you hold it over the potty, and uh, potty, that's what we say in my household, and you, there's a, we have a spray. It's a spray gun, and I, and the poop just goes right on into the toilet, right? And uh, you all know that poop is gross, and that kids' poop in particular is gross. But the point I, I talk about poop in church is this. <laughs> It's coming. The reason I talk about poop in church is this, is have that image in your mind when you think about anything else that you think will give you superior joy. Paul describes his relationship to Jesus in anything else that he might cling to or want, and he looks in the toilet, and he says, it's like that, okay? That's the language that he uses, and he exalts Christ in such a way. And then he describes his joy and Jesus' righteousness for him. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, And I want to be found in him. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that come, <coughs> a righteous, excuse me, and I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, like before, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So he says, Listen, you want to have joy, Christian? Then pursue Jesus with all of your heart. And not just that, but find joy in, in the fact of how you came into a relationship with Jesus, which is by his blood, which was by his righteousness, his spiritual resume, which is far better than anybody else's that ever lived or ever could live because he was perfect. He was perfect, right? That is the righteousness that is offered to us as a gift if we receive it by faith to be made right with God. He says, I rejoice in this righteousness. And so, remember the equation? We talked about the equation. The equation that Paul was operating under before. It was Jesus plus something equals salvation, right? Jesus plus something. Well, his equation has been changed. His equation is this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, right? Jesus plus nothing is everything. And consequently, Jesus plus anything ruins everything, right? That's what he's saying as he rejoices in this righteousness. And so he closes in verses 10 and 11. His new resume had one word on it, Jesus. That's his resume. When he stands before a holy God and he, he, he hands him his resume, it's going to say Jesus. Jesus is righteousness. Verses 10 and 11, he returns and he closes on the subject of knowing Jesus, how it is his life's pursuit. And I can't help but think in the context of commanding them to find joy in Jesus that he's not modeling this now. And he says, he says this, I want to know Christ. I want to know him. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, even so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. What does he mean by this? He says he wants to know Jesus personally. He wants to pursue him like a friend. He wants to know him. But how does he want to know him? By what means does he want to know him? 
where there's an old phrase, and uh, I think it's true, and it goes this way. It says, it can be said that you know somebody uh, if you walk, quote, a mile in their shoes, right? If you really, if you want to know someone, then you, then you walk a mile in their shoes. Well, what do, we, what do we mean when we say that? Well, if you really want to know them, then you experience or share experiences that they have experienced, right? So if you want to really know someone, then you, 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 you enter into their world. You go through the things that they have been through. You walk a mile in their shoes. This is what Paul is talking about. He says, I want to know Jesus so badly that I will walk a mile in his shoes. That if I just experience some of the things that he experienced, then I'll know him. If I experienced, if I experienced even dying for the gospel, I want to know him so bad that if I die for the gospel, it'll be great because I'll know him better. That's crazy, right? But it's Christian. He says, even if I die in, in doing what Jesus did, and if I experience a resurrection like his, he's not doubting that he will. If I experience a resurrection like his, it's great. I'm going to know him. And so let's close with this. Which of these sections describes you? Are you in the self-righteous religion camp? Are you trusting in a whole host of things to be right with God and having your joy stolen? Or do you trust in Jesus' righteous relationship? Do you pursue Jesus Christ because you have a relationship with him? Because you trust in his righteousness? And in in doing so, my prayer for my life and for yours is that our heart's cry would be what Paul says, that we would say increasingly more so, although not perfectly, perfectly, Jesus, I want to know you. And whatever it takes, whatever I have to go through, whatever experience you give me, I want to know you through it. I want to know you. And that would bring us full joy. We would rejoice in the Lord. So this is how we're going to end. We're going to have a brief, brief uh, prayer time. I want to give you a time just to respond, to, to pray. If you've never trusted in Christ, if your resume is full of your good deeds and not Jesus, then repent of that and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. If you're, if you're a Christian here and you're like, man, I can't, I can't say what Paul says. I love a whole host of things more than Jesus. Let's just spend a quick minute in prayer, in repentance, and asking that Jesus would stir our hearts and our affections to know him and, and find joy in doing so. So we're going to pray. I'm just going to give you just a moment of silence. And as we do so, uh, when we're done, we're going to watch a short, a short autobiographical video of a man who also was deeply impacted and whose life was changed by knowing Christ. And there was an uh, incredible transformation. And then we're going to close by singing the song that he wrote. It'll be familiar to everyone. So let's, let's pray. And then we'll watch this short clip. Father, would you work in our hearts like only you can through your Holy Spirit? Would you bring those of us who have faith in Christ Would you bring us to repentance if we are pursuing lesser joys, if we are playing around in a sandbox when an infinite amount of joy, when when the beach is available to us, God, we repent and we want to say and live out this pursuit of of this person that we can know very intimately and, and, and real, though we don't see him, this person of Christ. Father, I pray now for any man or woman who's never, boy or girl, who's not trusted in Jesus. They hold out a, a resume that it will not stand before you. May they trust in Jesus plus nothing, and may they know it's everything. So be with us as we pray now.
Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. One of the most recognizable hymns of all time is Amazing Grace. Whether Christian or not, you've heard this song, whether in movies or in mockery. But the gravity of its words can't be fully known unless you know the testimony of the dangers, toils, and snares that brought these lyrics about. John Newton was born on July 24, 1725. His mother died at six, and he had this to say of his father. I am persuaded that he loved me, but he seemed not willing that I should know it. I was with him in a state of fear and bondage. His sternness broke my spirit. Left to his own devices, Newton became a debauched sailor himself. He was pressed into naval service against his will at the age of 18, living a destitute existence as part of the slave trade. But Newton was not much more than a slave himself. He was treated terribly and later wrote that the African slaves would often smuggle food to him. It was in this dark hour that God began to close in on Newton, a man who wasn't looking for him at all. On March 21, 1748, Newton, then 22 years old, awoke to a violent storm. His room began to flood with seawater and he rushed towards the deck. On his way, the captain stopped him and sent him to get a knife. The man who took his place on the deck was instantly washed overboard. Newton was assigned to the pumps in an effort to keep the boat from sinking. From 3 a.m. until midnight the next day, he worked the pumps and took shifts at the helm. While on the pumps, he uttered a desperate prayer. If this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. It was his first petition to God in many years. The boat limped for safe dock in Ireland, and while doing so, Newton read a Bible he had found. In his heart he felt like an irreconcilable sinner, but Jesus' words gave him hope. The date would be one he would never forget. The experience marked a huge turning point for Newton. However, his life did not instantly change. In fact, he was the captain of a slave trading ship for several years after the event, and it wasn't until later in life that he would strongly oppose the slave trade. Newton wrote of his experience then. I acknowledge the Lord's mercy in pardoning what was past, but depending chiefly on my own resolution to do better for the time to come. I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word until a considerable time afterwards. He eventually married and in 1764 he felt called to become a pastor. Over the next 42 years, he tirelessly shepherded two churches. It was during this time that he started a prayer service with William Cooper and started writing hymns collaboratively and on his own. And with totaling 300 hymns to his name, he averaged one a week. He was instrumental in encouraging his friend and ally, William Wilberforce, to stay in British Parliament and fight for the abolition of slavery. Wilberforce was the major force in bringing about the end of the slave trade in Britain. Encouraged by Newton, Wilberforce fought for the abolition of the slave trade for almost 46 years, facing mountains of opposition. But through it all, he faced this conflict with the same spirit that led Newton, and in doing so, made even his opponents admire and respect him. 
John Newton's life was not a sprint, but a marathon, filled with hurdles, strife, and adversity. But all of this only served to embolden Newton's faith, and to cause him to rely more and more on the grace he had first received in the middle of a violent storm at sea, so that one day he could write the words to a hymn that would touch the lives of countless people. 